All right. What's going on, guys? Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Brett Thomas, and uh, this is my very first sermon. Uh, I'm, I'm a little nervous. Uh, I feel like I got kind of big shoes to fill, not only metaphorically, but also physically, because Matt's, Matt's a really good teacher, but he also wears size 15 shoes. Uh, uh, sorry, I know that's rough. It's going to get worse before it gets better, though. Uh, I thought we'd go through the book of Jonah today. It's a, it's a book that I think that we're all familiar with, but maybe we have some perceived notions about it that might not be very accurate. Uh, first, we often refer to it as the story of Jonah and, and the, the whale or the story of Jonah and the fish. And I don't think the fish should get as much credit as it deserves. Uh, it's only mentioned four times throughout the entirety of the book. And yeah, the book is short. But still, if we go by that logic, um, if we look over in chapter 4, there's a plant that shows up. And the plant's kind of weird, but it's the counterpart to the whale. And it's mentioned five times. And so, in that retrospect, it kind of makes more sense to refer to this as the story of Jonah and the plant versus the story of Jonah and the fish. And none of us would call it the story of Jonah and the plant because that's, well, that's a little ridiculous. So, at least for this week and next week, you can make up your own minds after that. But let's not call it the story of Jonah and the fish. Let's just call it Jonah. Uh, if we had another perceived notion about Jonah, it would be that Jonah is this repented hero of his story. And uh, I think we get that notion from those little cardboard pop-up books that we either read to our kids or our, we were read to as kids. The way that story goes in, in those little kids' books is Jonah disobeys God. Jonah, Jonah runs from God. He gets tangled up with some sailors and eventually gets thrown overboard and swallowed by a whale. And then once he's in the whale, Jonah feels really sorry for what he did. And once he feels sorry, then God gives Jonah a second chance. And Jonah is sometimes spit out of like the little blowhole in the pop-up book. And he lands on the shores of Nineveh. And then in chapter 3 goes on to proclaim the message that God gave him. And then all of Nineveh became Christians. And if this is your perception of Jonah, I want to challenge that this morning. Because I don't think that that's the way that Scripture really intended it. If you, if you read the biblical account, uh, chapter 1 is a lot like chapter 1 in the, in the children's book. Um, Jonah, again, gets tangled up with some sailors, gets thrown overboard and eaten by a fish. But once he's eaten by the fish, he kind of gives a grateful prayer. Once he's in the fish, there's, there's no really repentance um, like I said, he, he seems to be very grateful at times. And then once, once the whale vomits Jonah out, Jonah travels to Nineveh, and this time he obeys God and, and gives the message that God kind of tells him to give. And uh, Nineveh is saved, just like chapter 3 in the children's book. But if you notice, in the kids' book, there's usually no chapter 4, because chapter 4 gets kind of weird. Um, Jonah, Jonah gets really mad and specifically more mad at God, he, he asked to die a lot. And that weird plant that I talked about comes up. And so nobody really knows really what to do with chapter 4. And so they just kind of cut it all together. And I think chapter 4 is really important to the story of Jonah. I think it kind of ties the whole story together. Uh, but we're going to get into chapters 3 and 4 next week. This morning we're just going to jump into chapters 1 and 2. And I've given you two ways to not approach Jonah, so I thought I'd, I'd maybe give you a way to approach Jonah. And I want to do that like a Babylon Bee article. 
for those of you who don't know, if you, if you watch the news, uh, no matter what side of the fence that you're on, no matter what news network that you tune into, there's usually a narrative that is pushed. And most of the time, that's to one specific audience. And sometimes that narrative gets a little blown out of proportions, I think, maybe. And so there's a, uh, there's a Christian satire website called the Babylon Bee. And what they do is they, they take that exaggerated news article and, uh, that we may be kind of numb to, and they, they pump up the exaggeration even more and sprinkle in a little sarcasm, and it, it kind of mocks and it makes fun of the, the original news article, but I think it also underlines a dark truth that we may not have been aware of. Uh, I'll give you an example. So a motorcyclist who identifies as bicyclist goes on to set world cycling record. And uh, that's, that's slapstick comedy by itself because if, if anyone showed up to a, to a bicycle race on a motorcycle, that, that would be funny. But if we watch the news, then we see what this article is really about. It's, it's this idea and this agenda and this narrative that's being pushed that men can pretend to be women and women can identify as men and sometimes kids can be cats. Um, but it also underlines this super dark truth that there's people that actually believe this and they do this to their kids and they have to live with these choices for the rest of their life. And that is how I want us to view the book of Jonah. Unlike this Babylon Bee article, this is, this is fake, this is, this is made up. And I don't, I don't think Jonah is, though. Jonah is very real from beginning to end, fish, plant, and all. Uh, but I think there's a lot of dark things in Jonah that will speak out because Jonah is ridiculous, and Jonah does a lot of things that deserves to be made fun of. Uh, but again, I think it does that to, to kind of reveal these, these dark parts in our heart that we maybe not be aware of. Um, so before I get into Jonah, I want to do a little bit of a, a history lesson to catch us up to speed on who this guy is and what he's about. And so I'm going to put 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 29 up on the screen. You don't have to flip there. We're not going to be here very long. Um, but it talks about this king named Jeroboam II. And here in verse 24, it says that Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He was a very evil guy. However, in verse 25, he went on to restore the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Araba, also known as the Dead Sea today. And he did this according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. And so to give you a better mental image of this, this red region of Israel right here is where Jeroboam reigned. And what Jonah said is he came along and he said, you are going to expand from the Dead Sea, which is this dark portion right here in Judah, and you are going to expand up into this region of Lebo Hamath, and you're going to take that land from your neighbors, Assyria. Now, if, if you've read the Old Testament before, you know that if a king is evil, usually a prophet goes kind of against what the king says. Remember last year, whenever we were walking through the book of Samuel and Nathan confronted David, whenever he did that thing to, Jer or, uh, to Bathsheba and Uriah, that's what the prophet is supposed to do. But it seems like Jonah's kind of blessing uh, a guy that is, that is evil. And that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Until we realized that Jonah wasn't the only prophet at the time. There was also a guy by the name of Amos. And in Amos chapter 6 verses 13 and 14, 
Amos addresses Israel, and he says, You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnam for ourselves? Side note, Lodabar and Karnam were just cities in this purple region of Lebo-Hamath. But Amos goes on to say, Behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they will oppress you from Lebo-Hamath to the brook of Arabah, or the Dead Sea. And so... Jonah is saying, hey, you're about to add on to your house. You're doing pretty good. And Amos comes along and says, not only are you going to lose that addition to your house, but you're going to lose the entire house in general. He kind of reverses what Jonah says. And that's, that's big news because Israel hasn't been in captivity. They haven't been overtaken completely since they were in Egypt. And so you've got two guys from God saying two kind of different things. Who are you going to believe? I think, I think Jonah is honestly the, the, the person that we would go with with our guts because Jonah's kind of already proven himself. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have been rejoicing over these cities that they captured here in verse 13. And honestly, Jonah's, Jonah's prophecy just kind of sounds better. Uh, once Amos comes along, he kind of sounds like a, like a naysayer or a, or a negative Nancy. And unfortunately for Israel... Uh, they, they went on in, in Amos 7. They kicked Amos out of the country altogether. Amaziah, who was the high priest at the time, said, Seer, prophet, flee. Go away down to the land of Judah where you're from and eat bread and prophesy there, but don't come back up here and prophesy. We've got our boy Jonah. We're good. Uh, this, is, this is the king's sanctuary, and this is the temple of his kingdom. So Jonah becomes the man, and Amos gets the boot. Unfortunately for Israel, though, Amos was right. 30 to 40 years after this, Assyria came down and conquered not only that region of Lebo-Hamath, but also all of Israel. So what does that tell us about our boy Jonah? Is Jonah a false prophet? No, technically he isn't, because what he said did come true, um, even if it is on a technicality. So if Jonah's not a false prophet... I think that tells us one or two things. Either Jonah told half-truths to make himself sound better and maybe tickle the ears of the people that might be lining his pockets, or God is setting Jonah up to fail to maybe teach Jonah a lesson of some kind. We don't know based on the information given to us so far. So I want us to, to take those questions. I want us to tuck them in our pockets and, and hold on to them and, and hope that the, the text later on answers, though. So if you'll follow along with me in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah, a terrible way to start, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about a prophet because we don't really have those today, at least not legitimate ones. Um, the prophet was a mediator of sorts. He, he represented God to the people, but he also represented the people back to God. And so it's, it's not a position that I would really want to be in. But like Moses and Elijah before him, this was the position that Jonah was in. And this is the first time that a prophet was told not to 
prophesy to Israel and or Judah, but to another nation, and this nation happens to be Assyria, the, the, the land that they were actually at war with. And so, in a way, it was kind of like God telling Jonah to go across enemy lines and give that nation a piece of God's mind. And I can start to see why Jonah really didn't want to go to Nineveh to begin with. And Jonah flees to Tarshish, and we don't really know where Tarshish is. We have kind of a rough idea. Uh, if Israel and Joppa are all the way over here on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, over here on the south coast of Spain or the northern coast of Morocco is where we think Tarshish is. And while we don't know where Tarshish is, what we do know is in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 22, uh, it tells about the time of Solomon, David's son. And Solomon was king over Israel and Judah at the time, and he had a fleet of ships that went from Joppa to Tarshish and back. And it took three years to make that round trip. So if it took three years to make the round trip, Jonah, I can only assume, would be going one way, and so it would have taken him a year and a half to get there. And so I, could, I think we can safely assume that Jonah's not just going down to Juanita to see his mom before he goes across enemy lines. Jonah's skipping town and he's, he's not coming back. But as we go on in the very next verse, Jonah hurled a great wind upon the earth, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps that God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. So God immediately starts thwarting Jonah's plans. And the sailors they, that were with Jonah, they start getting really scared. They start calling out to their gods and... I don't think they really got an answer. So they start throwing over cargo that was in the ships, probably the monkeys and the peacocks from First Kings, and that, that didn't really help them either. And so they, they go down to the, to the very inner part of the ship, and they, they get Jonah up, and they said, Hey, call out to your God. Uh, maybe, maybe that'll get us out of this predicament. And this is the second time that Jonah's told to acknowledge his God, and I don't think he does. Because in the very next verse, in verse 7, the sailors say to one another, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. So when they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And Jonah responds by saying, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So again, I don't think Jonah acknowledged God because these guys are down to the point where they're literally rolling the dice and pinning the tail on the first donkey that comes across. And unfortunately, Jonah is that guy. And so after they peppered him with questions, Jonah speaks. And what he says sounds pretty good on the surface. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And I think the implication is he controls everything in it. And I have a question, and I say this as lovingly as I can, but how, how dense do you have to be to say, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and controls everything in it, and then 
you run from that same God for the next year and a half in a boat. It doesn't make sense. And I don't, I don't think the sailors bought it either. Because, because Jonah was just bragging to him about how he was running from God earlier. And so they look at Jonah and they say, Do you realize what you've done? Continuing on in the next verse, they said, What shall we do to you so that the sea may quiet down for us, so that for the sea grew more and more tempestuous? That's a cool word. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Uh, Side quest for the week. Uh, Use the word tempestuous in a sentence with somebody that's not here this morning. Um, So... The storm is getting worse and worse. These guys are going to have to do something and do it fast. They, they, just, they talk to Jonah directly and they say, Man, is there anything that we can do to get us out of this mess? And Jonah says, I have an idea. Why don't you murder me? And, you know, we, we know, most of us in here know how this story plays out. And so I think a lot of times we just kind of gloss over that, that phrase that Jonah says, and just assume that it's God that's saying this, but I, I don't necessarily buy it. Um, you know, none of us have really been on a sailboat in the middle of a sea during a storm, but I think we've all been in a snowstorm, I think. Uh, so I'll use, I'll use that analogy to explain this further. Um, say, say there's a ball game or some kind of ball tournament on the other end of the state, uh, and so you pack up your car and all your children, and you, you start heading across the state. And you run into a bit of a storm. And so the further you get into the storm, it gets worse and worse. And so you turn down the radio so you can think more clearly, and you start thinking of your options. And option one is maybe we should turn the car around. Maybe this tournament isn't worth risking life and limb of me and my children. Uh, maybe I should just go back home where it's safe and warm. And then we laugh at that because we're from Imperial and we love high school sports, right? Uh, that was supposed to be a joke, guys. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think this option was open to them and they didn't take it. And so option two would be, you know, maybe, maybe I can pull over into the next town and wait for the storm to pass by. Maybe... Um, you know, maybe the, the tournament gets delayed and maybe we could still get there on time and, and clinch the win. And I think this is what the sailors tried to do. They, they rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the storm got worse and worse. Um, so option one is out, option two is out, and that brings us to option three. And I guarantee you guys have never thought of option three before. That's to open the slide door of the van, kick the least desirable kid out to the side, and throw him hot hands and wish him the best of luck. No, we would not consider that because, one, that's dumb and it would never work. No amount of hot hands is going to save that kid from freezing to death. So why is it okay for Jonah to suggest this? If this was really the option, why didn't Jonah just throw himself overboard? Why does he have to pin the blame on the sailors? And again, they, they don't buy it either. They, they, they said, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They, they didn't want to listen to Jonah. But the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And so 
they're, they're out of options. And the very next verse, verse 14, they, they called out to the Lord. And they said, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. They picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And all of a sudden the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. I think this is my favorite part of the whole book. So uh, the sailors, they've addressed Jonah three times. Now, the first time, Jonah ignored them, and they ignored their uh, pleas for him to call out to his God. The second time that they acknowledged Jonah, uh, Jonah kind of fed him a line that didn't really make a lot of sense. And the third time, Jonah tried to convince them to kill him, and they didn't really like either of those three options. And so, getting tired of dealing with God's mediator, they, they skip God's mediator, and they go straight to God themselves, which in the Old Testament was a huge no-no. You see, in the Old Testament, you always had to have a mediator of sorts. You had to have a prophet to to get a word from God, or you had to have a high priest to offer sacrifices on your behalf. And that was for Jews. And these aren't Jews, they're Gentiles. So they're, they're outside of, of these laws. It does, this, none of this even applies to them. And so this would have made a lot of the Old Testament Jews really, really mad. And look at what they say. They say, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Does that remind anybody else of another passage of Scripture? Someone that doesn't want the responsibility of a, of a man's blood on their hands? I'm going to flip over to Matthew 27, verses 24 through 25 for a bit. Right before Jesus was crucified, Pilate uh, saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. So again, just like the sailors, the situation is getting worse and worse. So Pilate took water and he washed his hands and he looked at the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to this mess yourself. And the people responded by saying, his blood be on us and our children. Mm. Do you see the foreshadow in this to Jesus? Even though that these Gentiles were ultimately responsible for the death of God's prophet, it is ultimately the death of God's prophet that gave them salvation. For the sailors, it was salvation from this storm. For the people in the book of Matthew, it's, it's for their eternal souls. Guys, this is Jesus in the book of Jonah, but just a small foreshadow of what Jesus would come to do. And this is, this is awesome. Look at what happens. Look at what happens after they realize that they've been saved from the situation that they're in. The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These guys went from being Gentile pagan sailors to just sailors. And it's awesome! And going on to the next verse, the Lord appointed a fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. I think that's uh, that, that three days and three nights, I think that's an old euphemism to say Jonah was six foot under. Uh, to, to further emphasize that, you know, we, we watch movies or we read books and whenever someone gets caught up in a situation, maybe a storm or a tornado, and they get whisked away, you think, oh, well, he's, he's dead. But, there, you know, and sometimes in movies and books, they come back for like a twist, surprise ending. But if that guy gets thrown out into certain death, and then 
a giant monster comes and swallows him whole, you think, okay, that, that guy's not mostly dead. He's, he's dead. He's dead, dead. And I think that's the implication here, too. But the story continues, and so, so will we. And we're just going to read chapter 2 all the way through. Um, so Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And after that, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. Hmm. So, again, you read this prayer, and it seems pretty good on the surface. Jonah mentions God a couple of times, but every other time that Jonah has spoken so far, once you dig down into it, it kind of falls apart, and I don't think this prayer is any different. One, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there's, there's no remorse for what he did, and I don't think there's any repentance or acknowledgement for, for what he did earlier, uh, how, how he was acting. Uh, if you read this middle section right here, verses 2 through 9, uh, Jonah mentions himself a total of 23 times. Feel, feel free to count that. 23 times this guy mentions himself. Here in verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight. But who drove Jonah away? Jonah drove Jonah away. Nobody but Jonah. He goes on to say in verse 8 right here, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Who's he talking about there? The sailors back up on the shore. Jonah was thrown overboard and swallowed by the fish before they started worshiping God. Jonah doesn't know the transformation that's taking place. I think he's kind of missed it a little. Uh, it reminds me of this parable that Jesus told over in Luke 18, verses 11 through 13. He tells this parable of these, these, uh, these two guys, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. They came into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this here tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even... I lost my place. Standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So if we, if we go back to Jonah, who is the exalted one in this scenario? And who, who is humbling themselves? The sailors are back up on the shore worshiping God and offering sacrifice. 
Meanwhile, Jonah is at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea being digested by a fish, and he's still full of himself. So I think he's going to be, I think he's going to need just a little bit more humbling. I have, I have another thought, and we're just going to treat this, uh, we're going to treat this as hypothetical for now. Uh, but I don't think Jonah knows that he's getting rescued from this fish yet. And he, he, he mentions salvation here, but if that's the case, what, what kind of salvation is he mentioning? I think Jonah thinks that he's being rescued from going to Nineveh instead of... Is that, does that make sense? I think Jonah would rather die a slow, painful death than to see his enemy saved. And again, that's... We're going we're gonna to treat that as a theory. Let's, let's tuck that in our pockets with the other questions that we have. And let's hope that maybe the author uh, explains that later. Look at, to, to finish chapter 2 out, uh, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. That's very precise language. And uh, I think we should all, whenever we read Jonah's prayer, we should kind of respond in the same way. It should make us sick to our stomachs when, when someone who, who claims they're from God acts in the way that Jonah does. It should bother us. And that leads me into the first main idea as we, as we begin to close, and it's that self-righteousness can keep us from being self-aware. I think we've either all known somebody like this, or maybe we're this person ourselves and we don't realize it yet. I think C.S. Lewis said it best when he said that humility isn't thinking less about yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. That is to say, don't, you know, if, if, you, if you try to humble brag, if you try to downplay God's blessings or, or your abilities or your looks, who is the focus still on? You, the person. And so humility isn't thinking less about yourself, but humility is... It's thinking about others more and putting other, others before yourself. Um, I think we do this thing as Christians sometimes where we, we kind of twist God's word to kind of suit our own needs. We use verses like, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I think that's come to be known as this verse. Uh, people use this verse as like a blessing ATM where you walk up to the ATM and you swipe your card and you hold your hands out for the blessing, but then you see the insufficient funds come up on the screen and you think, oh, well, I've got to go delight myself in the Lord. If, if I scratch God's back, then he'll, he'll scratch my back. And that's not the way that that works. Uh, you, don't, you don't go out and, and do things for God so you can twist his arm later and say, hey, God, I did that thing for you, so now you have to do this thing to me. That, that's totally not what this verse is talking about. This is, this is talking about sanctification and growing in likeness with God, delighting in God, growing in likeness with God, and making your desires His desires. Or what about uh, judge not lest you be judged, or get the log out of your own eye? You know, a lot of people, they use that verse to say, uh, I don't like to be criticized, so don't criticize me, and I won't criticize you. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense either. If, if I saw John pulling out of the parking lot, and I said, hey man, your taillight's out. I, I noticed that. I don't want you to get a ticket. And if John looked back at me, he said, oh yeah, why don't you go check your taillight? Everybody in there would look at John and he would say, what's gotten into John? But John wouldn't say that. John's, a, John's an excellent guy. So why do, we use that, why do we use that verse in that way? 
if you read the if you read the second half of that verse, it's get the log out of your own eye, so you can clearly see to get the speck out of your brother's eye. It's to study the scriptures and have your ducks in a row, and that way, whenever you go to somebody and and reach out to help them, they take you a little bit more seriously and not like the clown that you might be. Guys, I think that we're all blinded by our own sin. None of us in here are exempt from that. We're all blinded by our own sin. I think we need to surround ourselves with people who know us and who love us and can speak truth in our lives. And we also need to be open to the idea that we aren't as good as we might think that we are. And we need to humbly consider when someone tells us something about ourselves that we may not exactly like. And that leads us into our next point. And it's that God doesn't need you to accomplish his purposes. And you may fight me on that. You may say, but Brett, if you, if you go to Matthew 28, God tells us to go out and make disciples and baptize. And yeah, God, God totally said that. I'm not arguing that at all. But with that logic, you're saying that the God who created the universe, the earth, and everything in it, the God that split the sea, that God that calmed the storm, the God that made the blind to see, the God that made the lame to walk, and he raised the dead all of a sudden now needs your help because he can't get it through your neighbor's thick skull that he loves her. That doesn't make sense. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants you so much. My grandmother is the perfect, not my grandmother, my mother-in-law is the perfect example of this. Uh, Anytime I go over to Cindy and Jarrett's house, uh, oftentimes my nieces and my nephews will be there. And she does this super awesome thing where she, she leans down and she gets down on their level. And she goes, hey, can you come help me in the kitchen? And she, she, she's, she, she seems genuine about it. And these kids, they really buy into it and they get really excited. But if any of you guys have ever enlisted the help of three and four-year-olds, four you know they're not that helpful. It takes way longer to do what you intended to do with them around. They question you at every twist and turn. And most of the time, you end up with a bigger mess than what you started with. Cindy doesn't ask these girls for their help because she genuinely needs it. Cindy wants to spend time with these girls. She loves her grandchildren. She wants to teach them and, and instill values in them where they grow up and they, they, they apply it to their own lives. And they look back with fondness and they think, man, my, my grandma was awesome. Like the relationship between us and God, I don't, I don't think God really needs us to accomplish his purposes. It's more about, it's not as much about the people that we go to speak to versus our own selves and our own walk with Christ. It's to, it's to trust God fully that he has your best interest in mind. And that brings me to my last point uh, as we close. And it's salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, Jonah mentions this, and I don't, I don't know if Jonah mentions this, but I think that we should all believe this. Uh, and I, I read this out of the, the Gospel Transformation Bible, and I thought it went really good here, and I couldn't have said it better myself, and so if you don't mind, I'm just going to read it off the page. Uh, it says, God's dramatic intervention in the life of Jonah is full of hope. Not only for those who seek God, but also for those who, like Jonah, have determined to shut him out. Many people believe that God just opens the door of salvation and then stands back, leaving us to decide if we want to come in or not. But if God made salvation simply possible and then stepped back, refusing to interfere with our choice, then the entire life of the believer would be about us. 
our believing, our serving, our following, and our choices to live a good life. In the case of Jonah imprisoned in the whale's belly, he was quite incapable of performing any redeeming work to compensate for his own sin. God was not relying on Jonah to save Jonah. And the message remains the same for each one of us here today. If you have trusted God for salvation, God has done more than simply made salvation possible. He's actually saved you. I mentioned earlier that, you know, whenever Jonah was thrown out into the sea and then the fish came and swallowed him, Jonah wasn't mostly dead. He was, he was dead dead. Likewise, over in the Gospels, Jesus, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees and they, they want to see a sign. And, the, and Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're not going to get a sign except for the sign of Jonah. Like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will I be in the heart of the earth. And Jesus stopped short before he said, but like Jonah came back, expect me to make a comeback too. Like Jonah and like Jesus, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and not just mostly dead. We were, we were dead dead. Have you ever tried to reason with a dead person before? You don't really get very far. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. And it's by this grace that we have been saved. Guys, I don't want us to walk away with a false sense of salvation this morning. If you think that you are saved because of something that you yourself did, I want you to think about that. Or is it something that God has 100% done for you, not reliant on anything else? I want us to contemplate that as I close this in prayer and the musicians come up. God, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, like Jonah, we're, uh, we're a bunch of knuckleheads in our own, each individual unique way. But God, you loved the unlovable. You give us attention that we don't deserve. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus, and uh, we pray that he comes back soon. God, and it's your name we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we, uh, as we close in singing.